Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. With Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us, a very special guest, Bobby Finger. Hi, Bobby. (laughs) Hi, everyone. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. As we were just saying before recording, this is so, so long in the making, because basically the minute that the first trailer came out for The Woman in the Window, I think, maybe even before it was on Netflix, I emailed you and just said, you have to come on. And we can get into why that felt like the most obvious thing. Um, But we're here at last to discuss The Woman in the Window. Um, This episode is coming out late because we're abiding the embargo for Woman in the Window, which premieres on Netflix this weekend. So we'll talk about the film. And then we will have an interview in the back half of the episode that I did with Dan Stevens, who is on the upcoming Amazon anthology series, Solos. Um, But first, we want to get into some of the breaking news of the moment as we record this. Uh, We're going to talk about the Golden Globes. uh, But first... There's some trailers to talk about. And uh, Richard, you wanted to talk about the Stillwater trailer with uh, Matt Damon wearing, I don't think it's like cut off sleeve shirt, but like close to it vibe of like uh, (laughs) uh, Oklahoma uh, redneck in France. Uh, What do we think about this uh, new film from Spotlight director Tom McCarthy? I mean, I think after watching Spotlight, we all thought to ourselves, he's definitely going to make a movie in which Matt Damon does real America drag in a French version of the Amanda Knox story, right? Like that just seems <laughs> like an obvious trajectory for everyone yeah. involved. A- Abigail Breslin. <laughs> yeah. I'm told the, the the French actress in it is from Call My Agent, which I've never seen. But yeah, it's weird. It's coming out in the summer. It feels like a big sort of awardsy movie, but it doesn't seem, maybe they're trying to do that like help slot kind of thing. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, the Amanda Knox story is what, a decade old, maybe? If not more. Um, and it just feels like weird timing. I, I don't know. Everything about it just looks strange. There, in the trailer, there are two very overt nods to like, you know, rah rah American patriotism. One of a, a shot of an American flag. The other, Damon's character saying, "Yeah, that's right. I am American." You know, um, so I I don't know if we should be looking at this as like an Oscar movie, but the trailer certainly is trying to make it seem like one. Yeah, I mean, I know that Tom McCarthy made the Cobbler, that movie where Adam Sandler has magical shoes, but like. He's earned a kind of automatic trust to some extent, right? Even that if was a documentary, though. And so, <laughs> yeah, <that's> like... <laughs> he witnessed it all happen firsthand. He just had to capture it. Yeah. I give him benefit of the doubt more than most people, I think, even though he has made some weird movies in his life. I mean, the thing with him is it's so interesting is that he's like, he's such a, um, at, at, his, at McCarthy's best, he is this very like localized lived in kind of filmmaker like not just spotlight but like win-win or um the the movie station agent. jenkins the visitor uh, oh, the visitor agent. visitor the visitor thank you yeah yeah this feels so much like this feels like the visitor right like that's kind of the vibe this feels like more than anything else but like ripped from the headlines in this kind of very like sensationalist way it, it's just yeah it feels like a strange kind of tom mccarthy makes like the dateline you know horror story movie you know I just think Tom McCarthy makes movies about kind of how sad and lonely it can be to to live in America. And 
this seems like the opposite of that. Like, this seems like, like you said, like, rah, rah, America isn't America great. And he's always had kind of a complicated relationship with America. He makes it seem not super great and really hard to find a place, a reason to love, you know, living here and living in your little place. So I don't know. That was the first thing that struck out at me. Yeah, I think I think that'd be a nice thing to expect from this. Yeah, and I and I don't know how much of that is like, yeah, the the trailer being cut in that way and that we should expect that other message to come somewhere in the film. I don't know. Um and I will also say like the other question beyond the Tom McCarthy of it all is the Matt Damon of it all, right? Because like I feel like Damon has been casting around for a project that will sort of grip us for a couple of years now, right? There's been a couple attempts that haven't really landed. And um, I I like Matt Damon in dad mode. <laughs> I'm a We Bought a Zoo fan. So, uh, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm kind of interested. You bought that zoo. I you did. I, I bought zoo. into the zoo. You know, what can I say? <laughs> I mean, the crazy thing is that Matt Damon only has like two acting nominations, I think. Maybe three. The Martian. Oh, The Martian. So three. Yeah, because it would be The Martian, Ripley, Goodwill Hunting. Did he get nominated for Ripley? I think he did. Yes. If he didn't, then that's a tragedy. He should. But, but like, he's a great, great actor, you know? Yeah. And, and he's one of those, like, handsome leading men like Brad Pitt, who everyone over the course of their career was like, oh, maybe he's actually a character actor, which that term has sort of ceased to have actual meaning. <laughs> you forgot his... Academy Award nominated turn in Invictus. Yeah, unfortunately, that <laughs> oh, is the third right. that you were trying to think of. Not talented Mr. Ripley. Not talented Mr. Ripley. Okay, Invictus, of course, a movie that we have all of seen and yeah. loved. everyone loves Invictus. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the one where he plays the golfer, right? <laughs> no, he, play, he plays the rugby ball or whatever the sport yeah. is. But like the for- legend of Invictus fans. <laughs> <laughs> But like Ford versus Ferrari and downsizing, like these were like these movies in Suburbicon, uh, if you recall. He's good in Ford uh, versus Promise Ferrari. Promised Land, the, the weird <laughs> yeah. environmentalist movie. You know, these are all movies that like. Uh, well, don't forget we've got the last duel around the corner. Well, I know, but uh, like he's having a lot of fun and stuff like Deadpool two, 2 and Thor Ragnarok and stuff like that, and he's going to be in the next Thor movie doing the same thing again. Like he's having fun, but like these other bigger movies that like I think are swing at something haven't like haven't connected since the martian which was in 2015 not terribly long ago but not terribly recently either so he was also an oscar nominated producer of manchester by the sea his imdb is just really uh providing me a lot of revelations this morning (laughs) and he was supposed to play the casey affleck part i think yeah i think so yeah um, I'm kind of permanently rooting for Matt Damon, um, much as I'm permanently rooting for Ben Affleck. That's a whole that's a whole set. Although I guess, Bobby, on your podcast Who Weekly, you guys can't get into the Ben Affleck of it all, even though he's the dominant celebrity gossip story of the moment because he's too much of a them. But I assume you are thinking about a lot about him, too. Of course. And so were Hoda Kotb and Savannah Guthrie. I watched him on Fourth Hour or a clip of him on Fourth Hour today, and he was asked what he knew about Benefer's, you know, reconciliation. And he was like, he gave a very, his response, you know, showed me why we all like Matt Damon to begin with. It was very funny. He was playing coy. He was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, like it was, it was very charming. Um, And he was, you know, zooming in from Australia, which it's funny to me that he's lived in Australia for this long. But um, I was like, oh, right. This movie looks not so great. But Matt Damon, I'm in, I'm a fan. Yeah, Matt the Matt Damon, Damon press tour is a good thing. Yeah, I feel like he's always been so good at answering questions about Ben Affleck. That's like his superpower. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, we'll see how that come together on the last duel when they are out there together. Um, real quick before we move away from trailers, there was also a trailer for The Green Knight um, from David Lowry, starring Def Patel and his beautiful hair. Uh, it looks kind of weird and like almost like Jason the Argonauts even made me think about with like giants roaming in the background. Uh, it's an A24 release. They have been good at like marketing weird movies like Midsommar and Hereditary to come out in the summer, which I believe is when The Green Knight is set for. Um, you guys have any broader thoughts on it? The Green Knight was rumored to be at Cannes last year ahead of its release intended for last summer. So it's been done for a long time. Yeah. It David Lowry is such an interesting filmmaker. I mean, he, you know, went from Ain't Them Body Saints to Pete's Dragon to a ghost story uh, to the Robert Redford Sissy Spacek uh, oh, yeah. heist movie. Um, he's just, I think he's a really fascinating director I who keeps switching genre. So I'm really curious to see. The trailer is promising. Um but yeah, it's probably a tough sell. You know, we just did a post or we have one coming up um, that's like, here's a, a movie to see in the theater every week for the whole summer, you know, if people are like interested in getting back to theaters. And it's like, I don't know how you how you sell The Green Knight as one of those movies, <laughs> because mm. it looks very, uh, you know, esoteric. It's based on an old, 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 like Arthurian legend, I think, um, about people cutting people's heads off and I don't know, but I'm very curious to see it. But I, yeah, it doesn't strike me as a either very commercial or, frankly, very like awardsy. Well, I, w- I was just very, very, very excited for this film last year. It was like one of my most anticipated films because um, I, I do, I, I understand that it might not be for mass consumption, but I do love this Arthurian legend, and I do love, as you know, Dev Patel doing anything, and um, and I love the look of this. I loved uh, Lowry's Pete's Dragon among his like other more experimental things. I think he does really like he did that big, that wasn't a popular movie either, but he, he made me like weep in the theaters and he does like big sweeping epic as well as he does these like very small things. So I don't know that it will be for mass consumption, but I think that like a lot of A24 uh, movies, it'll find it's like rabid niche audience. Do you know? That's what I think about this movie. I don't know that I've cried at a movie as much <laughs> as I cried at Peace Dragon. <laughs> I saw a press yeah. screening of that movie the day after I saw Suicide Squad. <laughs> and I was like, so like, everything's terrible. And then that movie, I just was like, destroyed by people. I think, Bobby, you like that movie too, right? I love that. I love David Lowry movies. Yeah. So like, I like Dev De Patel a lot. I love Dave Lowry. I will love this movie. Like there's yeah. just, I, I watched the trailer and I was like, I don't, I, I don't care. Yeah. I, I've already decided I will love, th- I love the old man and the gun. You know, yeah, like I love, I, I love these movies. I feel very, they're so, th- I mean, obviously this uh, aesthetically at the very least just looks so much, looks like such a departure from his other movies, but I still like, I'm so used to like wrapping myself up in a David Lowry movie and like feeling very comfortable. So mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm looking forward to like seeing if that's cause a 24 is basically like, they're essentially just really good at book jacket design, right? Like they, <laughs> they make, they make, they package movies very, very well. And I don't know that their trailers are ever good at representations of what the movies actually are. So I'm like, I was choosing to see what isn't shown in this trailer. Cause I'm like that they're, they're trying to mess with me. They're trying to like make it seem like a thing that it may not actually be. So I'm hoping for, that that sort of Lowry esque um, comfort that I've come to expect from his movies, but yeah, I love Pete's Dragon. I love Pete's Dragon. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, I, I never, don't... I never do this. I, I swear, but um, after I saw a Ghost Story, which was his kind of post Pete's Dragon one one for me kind of movie, 
I tracked down his email address from a publicist and emailed him just like kind of thanking him for the movie. I, I think he's such as a thoughtful, sensitive, empathetic, um, or empathic really, uh, filmmaker. And I don't know how that aspect of his filmmaking is going to come into play in this, but I'm, I'm really excited to see if he can get that same kind of close kind of human, really organic sentiment in a movie that about, like I said, beheadings and, and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, there's a big beheading in there. It's it's potentially like a really sort of weirdly quiet interior spiritual movie, possibly. And I, I could see how in David Lowry's hands, like it could be that. Um, because the, the, the original text is pretty short and pretty sparse. And so there's just like a lot of meat he could put on the bones um, of that. I want to like drink every shot of Dev Patel in this trailer. I think he like the design of him in this is so, and like, he's such like David Copperfield, one of my favorite films of last year. So like he's, I, I just, I'm, I'm really excited. And I know we're not really in the habit of doing this, but I will just say if you somehow didn't see Peace Dragon, it is, you know, streaming on Disney plus. And I promise you, it's so good. And, you know, hopefully you'll weep. And, and wouldn't it be nice to feel something? So do that. <laughs> yeah, I do like the idea of, like, going into a theater and letting something let the, like this absorb you. Like, it's not a Fast and Furious movie in terms of, like, a you must go to the theater. But, like, if TV's feeling kind of formulaic to you, if you're tired of the walls of your own house, like, go escape to a world with Dev Patel in, 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 in Chainmail. I, I see the appeal in that for sure. It's giving me real, like, Fantastic Fest vibes. Like, I could see it at an, <laughs> at an Alamo Draft House in Austin, sweltering outside, but ice cold inside, and Deb tells there. So I yeah. would eat the Green Knight theme meal, whatever it is. <laughs> yes. All right, let's pivot to the awards drama of the moment. Um, the Golden Globes are not going to air on NBC next January, as you probably know by now. Uh, what led to it is kind of this long TikTok of scandals, um, some of which we've talked about on the show, probably some we haven't. We got a text, um, a couple of you texted us about subtext, including uh, on subtext about this, including two in a row that just said, RIP Golden Globes. And so we're glad <laughs> that you guys thought of us first when the news broke. Um, but Narushi Hayasaki uh, signed up for international texting to text us, which we're very grateful for, uh, and basically just asked for a recap of what happened, um, which uh, so our colleague Anthony Brassingham, by the time you hear this, will have written an article that really nicely lays all of this out. Um, and I'll crib from it just briefly. You know, it started, which I had forgotten, with Emily in Paris. Do you guys remember that Emily in Paris was the inciting incident yes. of this whole thing? Emily um, dans Paris. Emily dans Paris. Uh, the uh, LA Times article that basically revealed that uh, Netflix had flown members of the Hollywood Foreign Press to Paris to watch it be filmed uh, before it got nominated. And I believe the same article, oh no, sorry, a different Los Angeles Times article also revealed the real sticking point, which is that they had uh, no black members, um, you know, of the 86 or so people who were in the organization. Um, and then just all of these other smaller scandals followed, including the person who asked Daniel Kaluuya what it was like to work with Regina King at the Oscars was a, uh, a Hollywood Foreign Press member, which I had not put together until this moment. Um, and then uh, Phil Burke, who uh, was the former Hollywood Foreign Press president, called uh, Black Lives Matter a racist hate movement in an internal email. Also not great. So it was just a series of things. And I think we have certainly talked on the show before about how the Hollywood Foreign Press has a reputation for kind of going after the biggest stars. And, you know, if you can wine and dine them, you can get yourselves a nomination. And for a long time, it was just this like 
thing that people dealt with and the thing that has happened over the past few days, like, you know, Scarlett Johansson, Mark Ruffalo come out saying not to work with it. Netflix says they won't work with them. And it was all this, um, you know, escalating things that led to NBC uh, not canceling its contract, I guess, but just not deciding not to air it next year and asking them to do better, basically. Um, And I think the big question that none of us really can answer for now, but should certainly discuss is like, can the Golden Globes come back for this? Is this the end of the Globes or do we think that reform is actually possible? I think the, the the existential problem that they face and that kind of we face as like people who cover all this stuff is like, even if it were to come back in 2023, as NBC has said, they hope to broadcast the show that year is like, we now really can't ignore the fact that they have been irrelevant and sort of ridiculous for their entire existence. Yeah. Um, and I think that that might not matter to the casual viewer who would just tune in on a Sunday night to see some gowns and acceptance speeches and like, a, a, you know, monologues from comedians. But I think at its core, the show needed that at least kind of half serious pretense that they actually meant something. And now that it's just so apparent that they don't and that also not only are they just a frivolous kind of throwaway thing, they're rotten, you know, like there's such there's so many bad things at the core of the organization that those two things combined, the irrelevance and the sort of corruption uh, or, or you know, various other ills, uh, I just don't think that you can rebuild after that you know even if the show were to come back it's going to be met with even an even bigger shrug than it has been before um i wrote something for the site kind of you know presupposing that like the the globes just don't come back at least on like major broadcast television maybe they'll end up on cable somewhere but okay so what fills that slot is it this does nbc steal the sags away from tnt do they take the critics choice awards from the cw um i think both are viable options provided they can you know get that broadcast deal but i also think that there are problems inherent in either of those choices not not as institutional as there are with the hfpa but this really is about building a sort of regard and and prestige that takes a long time i mean the globes have been around for a long time and even after those many decades of its existence people were still questioning its legitimacy so you can't just swap in something else and be like now treat this as the second only to the oscars you know that just can't happen mm-hmm. i think uh, i think this is like a real emperor has no clothes moment uh for i just don't know that they do come back from this it just feels it, the the swell of lack of support <laughs> swell of rejection from these you know from from people, creative people who have power positions in Hollywood. Um, It reminds me of like the Me Too movement where like when there's a certain amount of people speaking truth to power and it's true, it's not, it's all true what they're saying about the HFPA. I just don't know how you do come back from that. Um, Especially if we have an award C cycle sort of without them uh, in a big televised position and we see what that looks like and maybe we find we don't miss them at all. I mean... You know, I, I think people on the awards, uh, you know, trail every year do enjoy the Golden Globes because it's like fun and weird and boozy. You know what I mean? Like that's something that's fun for them to do. Um, and there isn't really another award ceremony that's quite like that. But, you know, I, I don't think that's the reason to give them the amount of power that they've had for so long. 
Yeah, we had two different texts from listeners from uh, who had similar points. Marina Herrera Heinz and Timothy Leva were both like, both like, what does it mean that this is happening after the Globes were uh, not in person and kind of had a disastrous Zoom telecast? Like if they had just come off of yet another show where like everyone's in person, and they all get to schmooze and appear on television and kind of reap the rewards of that, would things have collapsed so quickly? And I think that's a, it's hard to know. It's a counterfactual. But I think that definitely had to do with it that we went a year essentially without the Golden Globes and we're like, hang on a second. We don't. We don't really need to do this anymore. Bobby, you're someone who is like watches the Globes, I know, um, and is like maybe doesn't obsess over it to the extent that we do. But does the do do you feel like the fun of it outweighed the the problems of it for too long? And and that's where we are now. That's yeah, I think because the gold, like you were saying, the Globes have been a joke for so long. Like if you if you've if you've read anything about the Globes in the past 30 years, you've come across some sort of news item about how it is corrupt in some way, whether it's any kind of version of pay to play or something else. But you watch it because the hosts are funny. You watch it because everyone's drunk. Like we understand why you watch it. But I mean, my my first thought after seeing this yesterday, the news that they just weren't going to air it and that Tom Cruise had returned his his awards, which I feel like is going to be, you know, the first domino and a very long line of dominoes falling with regards to people returning their awards, it just seems like the sort of thing that you you do simply because other people are doing it. Um, I was like, oh, cool. Maybe the SAGs will move to basic cable now. Like, maybe the SAGs will go off TNT or TBS or wherever they are. Because to me, I never watch them because they always sort of, as someone who's not a critic, as someone who doesn't do this for a living, the SAGs always creep up on me. And I, and I, watch the coverage of them because I know that they are this sort of like predictor of the Oscars, which I always watch. But I was like, I'd love to watch the SAGs. I'd love to be, I'd love them to amp this up. Like, I don't think it needs to be replaced. I don't think they need to come back. Like bring up one of these awards that is as a, as a viewer, as someone who follows this stuff and reads this stuff, like everyone's always talking about the importance of the SAGs. So like it's, it's on me for never watching them, but this is an excuse to like for the SAGs to shine, I guess. Um, that was my that was my gut reaction to all of this. Um, I'm sort of like, there's a there's a way things can be, things can replace the Golden Globes. You don't need to bring them back. I just think it's it's unfixable at this point. It's too toxic. And and the thing about the SAGs is that they like, for one thing, any award show about movies, let's be honest, or TV, people are watching for the actors, and so SAGs mm-hmm. are all just only actors. <laughs> And it's a dinner, so you can get people drunk. You can yeah. do you mm-hmm. can do the the sort of regular Golden Globes thing. You can have a funny host. You can move it from TNT to NBC if that contractually is able to happen. Um, I, I think the SAGs is a much cleaner switch than like any other award show, like the Critics' Choice would be. I mean, maybe it, there's not time for it to happen next year. I don't know what the contracts are like, but like that feels like an obvious successor, and it would probably pretty seamlessly just take over the the spot occupied by the Globes for many years. And I would love that. I mean, the SAGs, that's a great show and also like a great underwatched show. And also, it, they, I feel like they had their quiet internal reform a couple years ago. Does that make sense? I don't know if you guys remember that, but there was just like, it was like a couple years ago where the SAGs were like, we're going to do better about paying attention to, um, you know, a broader swath of nominees. And, uh, and I think they have since. So, um, yeah. 
bring up the facts. I'm obviously biased as a voting member on the Critics' Choice Awards, but I would make the case for that being the replacement. I mean, because I think it, you get a broader swath of nominees. Like you, ha- they have directing and writing, and you know, maybe too many prizes to air on a big uh, network broadcast. Um, but I think there's there's kind of a wide representation there, and you get them coming like after a bunch of the other Critics' Awards. There's a chance that it could like help make some critical darlings like more visible in the awards season. And also what will probably happen is both will become more, both SAGs and Critics' Choice will become more visible, Um, particularly because given the way that ratings are going for award shows on broadcast, like maybe NBC doesn't jump to replace the Globes with something and the ecosystem just shifts. Well, except that like, despite sagging ratings, like previous to COVID, like the Globes were still a very watched event, you know, like all live television viewing is down on broadcast networks, you know. The Super Bowl just dipped below 100 million last year, I think. The Oscars has always been the second most watched live event of the year, every year. Um, And the Globes was closing that gap with the Oscars previous to all this. So I think there is an advertising incentive to have something in that January slot. Um, my When I wrote about the, the Globes news um, for the site, uh, one thing I did say about the, maybe self-deprecatingly, about the, I'm not a member of the group, but like about the Critics' Choice Awards is like that word critics, I think, is a little alienating maybe to some people. And like, <laughs> I know that the Globes are also awarded by journalists, but they kept that journalism job title somewhat distant from the Globes branding, you know, I think yeah, a they lot had of people the word Hollywood want... first, not press first. Yeah, exactly. And and, and most uh, people so... just said HFPA. So you weren't even like, sure what the P stood for. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah, the dreaded P. Exactly. Um, so I think that I, I think that if the Critics Choice Awards were to try to move into that position, that would be something of a branding challenge, because a lot of people, perhaps fairly, perhaps unfairly, don't like the idea of critics and why would they sit down and watch what critics are saying is the best stuff of the year versus the much more amorphous nebulous academy branding challenge accepted um as a voting member of the critics choice awards i would like to ask all of our little goldman listeners to come up with like a new name for the critics choice awards um if it has the word gold in it uh bonus but i would like to hear it (laughs) katie where can they send those yeah, uh, text us at 213-513-7180 uh, and uh, tell us your ideas. Um, last question that is more of an existential thing for us than even our listeners. But in, in Anthony's piece, there are people just being like, you know, there's going to be just money lost in terms of events around the Golden Globes. And like people hold their parties for Golden Globes week and there's all this advertising that goes into it. And there is a speculation that, you know, after this year of COVID where we've learned to like go without stuff, that all of that stuff could go away. And I might be naive because this is, you know, part of my living as well. I, I don't feel like it's going to collapse that much because people still are willing to, you know, spend and be part of this circus but uh, do you guys think that it's a kind of a broader threat than just NBC's rating and and the globes themselves in terms of money loss like I had bought a bunch of watches to send to the HFPA because I'm trying to get Sharon Stone <laughs> a nomination for something yeah, yeah, yeah and now I don't know what to do with all these watches if you guys well, you want can give one, them to let me, me know send but, them to us the voting members yeah. of the Critics' Choice Awards <laughs> I mean I think that is such a big thing though is that the ancillary economy around all of this parties brand deals all that stuff you know um, people wearing certain designers dresses on the red carpet and then talking about it to Julianne Rancic like there's so much economy around this that isn't directly financially related to let's say the Golden Globes but like is like 
it is a sustaining part of Hollywood's livelihood and our livelihood in terms of FYC ads and coverage mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And yeah, and I think that in that way, the Globes going away and NBC or whoever trying to, struggling to find a replacement for it, like is threatening to that system as toxic as aspects of that system might be. Um, so I think it actually is more serious in those terms than maybe, you know, the sort of Tom Cruise giving his globes back. Did we remember he had them? No, I didn't. Um, like that, it, it seems kind of silly and sort of who cares, but actually there is, there are material effects of this um, outside of the HFPA that um, are, are worth bearing in mind, uh, I guess, in the future. Well, and I think that's why we're talking about some other awards sort of sliding into that spot, hopefully, rather than just eliminating that part of the whole ecosystem entirely. Uh, and, and really, honestly, truly, I could not handle more mail coming to my house. So I would not want to be like in the HFPA, like a uh, bribe spot. But um, but no, they I, just deliver it to you on the private jet they send to pick you up on your way to Paris. I, I can have maybe. these watches on a plane this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a way to shuffle the deck a little bit so that I, I agree with you, though, Richard. Like we, we know a lot uh, about, you know, the economy that exists. Uh, the, the sort of mother courage is dragging their wagons through a work season, <laughs> you know, selling their wares. Like, it's it's a big thing. Yeah, yeah. And we know a lot more about it because of the Oscars and, like, Vanity Fair's relationship with that. Like, we, we are aware of that ecosystem. And so, like, I hope that... Um, yeah, I hope that there's like a shuffling of the deck, but it might it might mean tightening up the award season a little bit. And I don't think that that is um, given the change in interest around the award season um, that we've seen from like ratings. Because, you know, I don't think NBC would have pulled the Golden Globes as, as quickly as they did if it like the ratings weren't also declining for the Golden yep. Globes, you know. Yep. So I think this idea of maybe giving us like a tighter, more electric um, award season might be in order. Well, it's a reminder that in the way we talk about awards, even on this show, it's like, well, this is what's always happened. So this is all happened. Like, this is what the Academy likes to do. This is how award season narratives build. And we watched this past year, a lot of that stuff change. And a lot of the things that we thought had to happen because they always did happen don't have to happen. And I think we're going to continue to see some rethinking along those lines. And in the case of the Golden Globes, I think it's going to be largely for the better. Maybe there's some stuff that we'll miss. But, uh, you know, the reshuffling of things in the pandemic um, is continuing and will continue, I think. Okay, now we're here for, I think, the first time in a long time we've just, like, done a review segment in some ways about a new release because, you know, we had our Oscar movies and we just talked about them for six months and now we have uh, new Six stuff. months. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Eight the best. Months, nine months. <laughs> um, so we want to talk about The Woman in the Window, which is a uh, it's new on Netflix uh, as of Friday. It stars Amy Adams and a very large uh, ensemble cast. It's directed by Joe Wright, who, as listeners of the show know, I tend to adore. Uh, it was going to be a... Um, a Fox release. Oh God, was it even made when it was still 20th Century Fox uh, before it became 20th? I this movie's been around for a while um, and then was sold by uh, Disney, which now owns Fox, um, to Netflix due to the pandemic. Um, and Bobby, I wanted to throw to you first because, as I said, it was kind of obvious that we wanted to have you on the show. But, you know, as someone who doesn't necessarily see every uh, possibly misbegotten uh, prestige <laughs> movie to land on Netflix, why was this one uh, so in your sights? Um, this one was in my sights because... Beyond just the Amy Adams of it all, it it was a book that I 
read and despised from like page one to page <laughs> four hundred or whatever. Like I, I think I read it in two sittings and was just so angry about it. I think I complained to people about it at the time. I was like, I just read the worst book over the weekend and I couldn't put it down, but I hated every page of it. <laughs> it's definitely going to be a movie. Oh my god! And then of course all the stuff with what's his, Daniel Mallory, AJ Finn's AJ Finn's the pen name for the author, and then everything surrounding his whole outing in the New Yorker of, of making up a lot of things about his past, like everything about the formation of this book as this kind of reverse engineered response to the the woman and the the girl on the literary thriller genre was was kind of fascinating to me. Like it was like, oh, he's a book editor. He knew what worked. This is sort of like this algorithmically created book based on trends in the publishing world. Like everything mm. about it was so annoying, but at the same time, like really compelling. Um and I hated the book so much that when I saw that it was being made by Joe Wright and starring Amy Adams and Julianne Moore, I thought, oh, wow, this is actually going to be kind of a girl on the train thing, which I mean, I have I, I love the book and the movie Gone Girl. You know, I, I think a lot of people who are fans of that genre of book, I don't really read a lot of thrillers and mystery novels, but I know a lot of people who do kind of don't like that book. I was, I completely fell for it. I love the movie as well. I think they're both excellent. I do not like the book Girl on the Train, but I thought the movie was a lot of fun. And I thought it was going to be a situation like that where this movie was just finding itself in this kind of fun position of taking a a, a piece of garbage and having fun with it and, and taking what works from this book and, you know, leaning into the star power and the creative power behind it. And, I thought, you know, if anyone's going to make this movie worth watching, it's Amy Adams. Uh, she did seem to be well cast when I first, you know, saw the photo of her in the window and then the other photo of her in the window and then another photo of her in the window. I was like, you know what? Fine. And the and the original trailer, which I just looked up, came out, came out in December of 2019, the original oh trailer for this God. movie. Like, remember December of 2019? It was like it three was months silly. ago. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was silly. It was it was over the top, like the reveal that Jennifer Jason Lee is is Julianne Moore and you you have the weird sort of like vibrating strings when Amy Adams' face is turning at the at her astonishment. Like I was like this is going to be a lot of fun. And then of course the pandemic pushed it pushed it pushed it and it just became this impossible movie. So it's sort of like the the legend of this movie only grew over the past year because it was supposed to come out May last year and then of course the pandemic stopped it. Netflix takes the rights to it and it was like when is this movie going to come out? And I couldn't tell whether or not they were holding it because it was good or holding it because it was bad. Because mm. a movie about an agoraphobe who can't leave her house seems like the perfect thing to release on VOD in the middle, if not sort of the the, the late middle stage of the pandemic. Like Or like I, May I, 2020, right? Like that was right. what I was hoping would happen back then. Just do it. And, and now having seen it, I was absolutely... Blown away by the fact that no, this movie sucks. <laughs> this is terrible. And and I was texting about this with Richard last night. I was like, I don't know what what camp I'm in. Would this have done better in the in in the heart of of last summer? Would people have been more forgiving? Would it have kind of been buried and forgotten? I feel like it has more eyes on it now. Like more people are going to know how bad this is and they're going to be less forgiving. So like, I don't know where I stand on what the correct strategy was here, but I, other than the fact that the correct strategy was not to make it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I, I think that I'm, I'm glad you put it in the context of Girl on the Train and Gone Girl because so much of what's wrong, I haven't read the book, but so much of what's wrong about the movie 
at least having read about the book, is that like the book is a Xerox of a Xerox mm-hmm. that is just, you know, hitting the beats hit by like Gone Girl and then everything subsequent to that. But trying to dress up this pale, pale imitator with all these prestige trappings with a Tracy Lett script. And, you know, I, yes, Joe Wright shot it, but then Tony Gilroy was brought in by Scott Rudin uh, to do re- massive reshoots. Mm. The, the rumor is that there were bad test screenings after the Joe Wright edit. Uh, there were bad test screenings after the Gilroy edit. It was kind of a lost cause <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> it's like you can't polish a turd, you know, <laughs> like they're, they, they're just it seems to watching this movie. It's like I think something at the heart of this was fundamentally bad and there wasn't really any way to to dress that up. I think you're right, Bobby, that the delays and all that only maybe maybe this is a narrow subset of people, but it's a you know, it's not insignificant number of people who were waiting on this movie as like the big star studded thriller savior of last spring or this spring. Yeah. It's like that mythos harms it all the more, you know, it because it it just comes with all this expectation. If this was just dumped unceremoniously on VOD somewhere in the last year with little fanfare, people would have been like, oh okay. But now it, it, it feels like it's arriving with a bit more consequence and way more consequence than it can uh, sustain given how shoddily it's made. I just wanted to circle back to the books one last time. Like an important distinction between like Gone Girl and those two novels that followed it. I mean, there have been countless imitators of those books, but like those are the two highest profile ones. Like Gone Girl at its heart is a movie that re- had a couple of, if not three or four characters that it understood and like really great characters with motivations you under, like understood. There was every, how it all tied back into the recession. Like the relationship between the two people at the heart of Gone Girl is so much more compelling than anything that happens in Woman in the Window. Like nothing about the character of Anna Fox makes sense is relatable is is you, you it's it's hard to empathize with her it's and, and weirdly it's easier in the book than it is in the movie but i'm done go ahead um i was just going to ask if i want my theory is that netflix might have delayed this because they didn't want to tank amy adams for hillbilly elegy like they didn't want to put it out <laughs> a month before but we can see how how well that panned and out she won them. the oscar for it so they were yeah, right no, to yeah, do that. yeah yeah good strategy <laughs> yeah. um go ahead joanna oh no i mean katie and i were texting while we were watching this and um I'll point out some bright spots. Uh, Julianne Moore is great in her part. One scene. Okay. I wasn't going to spoil it as one scene. But yes, Julianne Moore is fantastic in her one scene. So if anything, fire it up to watch her in that one scene. It's like, that's the most I've enjoyed Julianne Moore in a performance in actually a good while. Um, And there are some visuals that are kind of arresting, like some of the original Joe Wright sort of emerging through, I would expect, um, is arresting. But also, like, you just can't save this story, I think, no matter what, because, you know, every time there was a twist where I was just sort of like, what? Katie was like, yup, it's just like this in the book. <laughs> she's, like, <laughs> she's like, I can only assure you that it's just this baffling in the book. And I was like, okay. So... Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's this part, I think this is visual, this in the trailer where there's like a, a car crash in the middle of her living room and she's seeing and it kind of gets surreal for a moment. And it's kind of at the service of a plot twist that is not really that useful or revealing, but it, it's, it's striking. And there's this color that, you know, is used in the windows as like she's trapped within her own house that you can see something that was happening there at some point. And I don't know what like Tracy Letts's original version of the script would have been. Cause like you were saying, Richard, like, I don't know that you could polish the story. Um, 
Um, but you get the you get these glimpses of something that could have been better, even if I'm not sure this ever could have been a good movie. Well, the car uh, flipped over in snow that she she's standing in her kitchen looking into, I guess, the dining room or something. And she sees this car accident that informs her past. That was the scene where, you know, sometimes you watch a movie and you're, you kind of start to wonder, like, did the director do this whole movie because they had that picture in their mind mm-hmm. and then just kind of reverse engineered everything else? Like, yeah, I feel like there were some style choices. I, I'm K- K- Katie on the opposite side of the Joe Wright camp. I don't yeah, I know like really any of his movies except for maybe Hannah and Darkest Hour is fine. Ooh, I love um, Hannah. But uh, Hannah's great. But mm-hmm. um, and this actually is probably most akin to Hannah of all of his other work, um, you know, aesthetically. Um, I, I just, I just don't know that his, his stylistic interests, I, I think they kind of, they wander away from the story so far that it only highlights how thin the story is. You know, mm-hmm. there, I, I feel like if a, if a really solid B movie director had just taken this material and treat it, treated it as what it was you could make something kind of taut and compelling about it but with the high style and the low uh you know narrative low text it just makes it seem all the flimsier and i think that that's a failure of like i said trying to make something that is a copy of a copy Mm. feel prestige and significant the way gone girl was and i think that the girl on the train which is not a great movie but tate taylor and Emily Blunt, who's the star of that film, kind of knew what they had, and they treated it as what it was. They didn't try to dress it up, and I think that's the big failure in in this movie's case. I also think this film suffers not just in comparison to Gone Girl and, and Girl on Train, but also Amy Adams and Sharp Objects doing like a much better, yeah. better, better version of this like through the fog of substance abuse, um, trying to solve a mystery uh, character. Um, and I, I love Sharp Objects. It's one of my favorite things that's happened on TV in the last few years. And, you know, so it's so it just, yeah, there, there, there's, it's chasing so many different rabbits and not catching any of them uh, is yeah. what this movie is. Well, we didn't even mention Rear Window, which I rewatched um, after having seen this, um, <laughs> which, I mean, it references explicitly. And Joanna, you had the idea that Gary Oldman's white hair is a reference to um, Raymond Burr, who's yeah. like the suspected murderer in Rear Window. And my God, like, the, does it not do any favor? Because it has like classic film references like sort of in the movie and they're all over the book and you know the Julianne Moore character's named Jane Russell um, but none of it serves itself well and you watch through a window where you're just like oh like a character with a motivation and another one with a motivation and like a direction for the story to go and like all of these really basic things that Woman in the Window is missing. And something about the the book that I kept waiting for and I feel like I, I forgot to revisit the, the original trailer before this but I think there is a shot in the original trailer of her chat room because I to go oh, back to Amy right. Adams it's for... one of the most kind of crucial things that happens in the novel is that she belongs to this agoraphobic chat room and because she is a psychologist she kind of spends her days off she doesn't do anything all day so in the novel you see what she does all day which is she's in this chat room and she tries to help people out and it makes her not that I, I don't want to get into the trap of saying that like every protagonist has to be like well I, I don't I don't think that's true but when you have Amy Adams, who, like, why not make her likable? And she's so unlikable as a character in this movie, and her performance isn't even that great to begin with. Like, it's, it's almost like she doesn't have any idea what to do. But, like, a, a crucial, I think, element of her character is knowing that 
ultimately she's a good person and if if she is seeing things if she is making up if if she is the killer it's a factor of things beyond her control because ultimately she is good and you never get that sense in this movie and in the and in the book it kind of reminds you like she's she's spending her time trying to help people who suffer from the same affliction she suffers from and of course in the book one of the one of the women that she is counseling throughout the entire novel or most of the novel ends up being the 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 teen across the street ethan pretending to be an agoraphobe and he is and and it's also how he sort of sucks information out of her and how he gets to know her and how he knows all these things about her via these chat these chat room relationships these these chats with her and like i that's something that kept striking me throughout the movie i was like anna fox seems terrible just awful and i don't remember that being a thing in the book and yeah. it's, and i felt bad for amy adams i was like oh she's playing this wreck of a character she can't even add anything remotely charming to to her or or remotely you know likable and again, I, I, it, that, that's annoying to say, but like, it's Amy Adams. Come on. She's Junebug. You know? <laughs> like, like, the titular Junebug. Uh, the titular Junebug. Well, I mean, the like, baby was Junebug, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I, think, I think her character in Sharp Objects really pushed the line of likability sometimes, you know, in, in a way that I found really interesting. And I think that that's something that um, has been interesting to explore. So I'd like, I like... I, I guess I don't feel like I needed her to be likable. I just needed her to be like, I need to be able to invest in her. And I couldn't invest in her because she didn't even seem like a real person, if that makes yes. sense. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. if you want to watch a movie about an agoraphobe who loves chat rooms, just watch Sigourney Weaver and Copycat. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have that already. So those, we have so uh, many recommendations for everybody. I, I, I know, do, I know. Peace Dragon. Yeah. Do a double feature of Peace Dragon <laughs> and, and Copycat. copycat. <laughs> and Rear Window. I, I, I do think, though, that, you know, on a more serious note, like, it's a weird comparison to make, maybe, but something about the Ben Affleck movie, The Way Back, that came out right before the pandemic last year, that bothered me was that, like many other stories about addiction, it tries to source that disease in an event. Um, mm-hmm. I won't spoil what it is in The Way Back. I, I guess I won't spoil what it is in, in this movie. And I find something about that sort of psychological mapping really kind of weak and also borderline offensive like it it sort of it sort of blames outside causes for what is ailing amy adams's character and i think that is not a true understanding of agoraphobia of anxiety disorders of alcoholism like and 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 trying to sort of tie everything into this neat narrative bow that then is sort of by the end of the film untied and ever we're supposed to think everything is not great but better i i think that that's that's pretty thin in terms of of a subtext or a or sort of deeper meaning of the movie and 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 to compare it to gone girl like those are really in- psychologically interesting characters but what gillian flynn didn't do or david fincher didn't do was try to explain that and i guess i just wish that some of what was ailing the woman in the window was left a bit more uh, of a mystery in the way that it is in real life. I, I, I think that like the way that this movie tries to kind of diagram everything and, and parse it out and really explain everything it just, it, it doesn't work. And it, 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 the movie could have been so much richer if it just let things kind of exist on their own terms. Do you guys have any hopes for where Amy Adams goes from here? I feel like it's this in Hillbillyology and then, I mean, even Vice uh, felt like not quite what we want from her. Um, she's in Dear Evan Hansen later this year. Please don't forget the Justice League Snyder cut. 
I wasn't going I to beg kindly. Of you. <laughs> she's, I mean, she's fine in it. Like, yeah, I, no, she's none of it's it. her fault. Um, I don't know. I, I think all of us are kind of eternally pulling for Amy Adams, and yeah. I hope that she can. She can. I mean, the honestly, the Enchanted sequel seems. Is the fun. Enchanted sequel real? Is that real, or I is that just so. a thing? That's okay. Okay. I Look think at the, her IMDb. The worst thing that cool. Amy Adams could do is star in a movie adaptation of Dear Evan Hansen. So thankfully she's not. Oh, wait, no, no. I now see she is doing that. So that's a problem. We, but I heard from multiple people who could not believe how mean you were to Dear Evan Hansen, Richard. So you're, you're really Terrible leaning show. into your. Offensive, awful show. <laughs> Julianne Moore's also in it with her. It's the woman in the window uh, reunion that uh, America clamored for. Waving through the woman in the window. That's all oh, I know there about you it. Go, there you Thank go. you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I think Amy Adams does get to a spot in this movie where she's like decent. I do think that it's a bad performance in aggregate, but like she, it's not a total like embarrassment for her. I think the movie's failures kind of aren't fully on her, her shoulders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think the supporting cast, I think Brian Tyree Henry makes a lot out of a thin detective role. Yeah. Um, yes. Julianne Moore obviously is incredible in her one scene. I think the window's great. You know, I haven't seen that window in anything before. Um, I think it's mostly a theater window. Um, but no, I think there Hatch is like is there great. is value. <laughs> yeah. Punch, punch. The house. Yeah, the house is like a really good performer. Um, there's, but, you a, know, there's one point where, where Julianne Moore's character is like stuck in this dump. And I was like, oh, this place is gorgeous. Well, that's like the Anne Hathaway <laughs> She would tell Edgy a four lockdown movie where they're complaining and they're in like a four story with a huge backyard London townhouse. And you're like, fuck off. Like, <laughs> not to go back to the to the house, because I, I I mean, I feel like we should be talking more specifically about the windows. But if we go back and look at the house in full, like that was something that I, I kept, you know, cocking my head at and wondering like what the idea was. Richard, you mentioned something about like was Joe Wright's big idea, just the car crash and the house. And like. The, the movie somehow kind of, I don't want to say it looks cheap because I didn't think it looked cheap. And if anything, it looked very expensive because I was like, is this one gigantic set that they built? Because that is impressive. But I kept wondering, what? why aren't they doing anything with this? Like, mm-hmm. there's nothing really interesting happening. Like, and I know he gets made fun of it of for it but like the the panic room like cgi tracking shots that go through the house and through the you know the coffee decanter thing like like there was nothing visually interesting done with this you know physical house the most interesting thing that was done visually was the car crash in the kitchen and that was cgi so i'm like you have this practical set and it felt so wasted and every time it was wasted yet again i was just annoyed i was like this is a cool set and nothing is being done with it. And like you made the the rear window comparison, and like that was you know famously one of the I guess the biggest set at the time ever constructed. Yeah. And like it has this in its in its you know sights. It has this as something that it's you know kind of directly referencing, and it can't figure out how to reference it. You know, mm-hmm. like it can't figure out how to do it in a way that is compelling or unique. Um, that was just a really fr- a lot of frustrating things about this movie. It, it, it gilds the lily. You know, I I think that like. The house and and her environs that were were in for the almost entirety of the movie shouldn't feel so surreal. Her 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 psychological situation can feel surreal, but I think that Joe Wright just gussies everything up, and it just completely removes us. It would be so much more bracing if he really, like you said, Bobby, like used that set and like, and and we really felt like we were in that house. But when everything is color blocked and you know all these kind of elaborate images are happening. It, it, it just, it doesn't feel credible. I think 
again, to reference Gone Girl, something that David Fincher does so brilliantly in that movie is minus a few shots, it all feels kind of prosaic in, in a very carefully stylized way. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's doing, there's a lot of work going into that movie, but yeah. it's not trying to uh, distract us with fancy imagery, you know? Um, and I, I don't know that, that, that the source material here could have supported a more spare telling, but like they could have tried at least. And I think that would have been a better attempt. I think also the the house that like maybe the ceilings are so high in that house so that they can have that car crash scene. But like <laughs> the fact that the house feels so big and airy, uh, you know, like it's dark and it probably does not smell good in there. But like it, it's so much space. Whereas in Rear Window, right, Jimmy Stewart's in this like very small apartment and mm-hmm. the, and the space is all outside. And here you have her rattling around this huge thing. And I was just like, I don't feel the claustrophobia of her agoraphobia, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah. I would have given anything for a comic relief neighbor, like in oh. the window. There's so many of those. Yes. <laughs> Miss Lonely Watch Hearts. Window. You can well, rent, actually, it on, rent it on any platform of your choice. It's great. Yeah, it's so good. I don't think anyone said the word Wyatt Russell throughout this entire oh. discussion. Interesting. Oh. Interesting. I do think <laughs> this movie does accurately like depict the horror of Wyatt Russell living in your basement. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't watch Falcon and the Winter Soldier, so I, but I feel like if you had, you were like primed for being like, oh my God, him? Uh, and I, I find Wyatt Russell likable, but in this movie, he's kind of a non-entity. And they don't do anything with the character. It's just kind of... And yeah. I will say, this this movie is not com- entirely uh, without merit. I did learn one thing from this movie, and it is, if I'm ever witnessing a murder through my digital camera, I should take a photo of it. <laughs> I shouldn't just put it down. <laughs> she takes so many photos and not in the in of the murder. And there's literally a line, did you take a photo? And she's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Jimmy Stewart took pictures, and he had film. Now we'll move to the interview portion of the episode. We're moving into Emmy season. We're going to have a lot of great conversations coming up with people who are starring in some of the biggest shows that are premiering now or are going to be in the running for Emmy consideration. So we're going to start with my conversation with Dan Stevens. He is on the sci-fi-tinged Amazon series Solos. It is an anthology series, so all the episodes are really distinctly standalone. He's in the last one with Morgan Freeman, although he also has a brief appearance in an earlier one, which we'll get into. Um, And we talk about sci-fi and the nature of humanity and the pandemic and making a show during the pandemic. Uh, It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So Solos is so clearly, you know, clearly in some ways and not in other ways, a a pandemic era project. Um, And it's just really interesting to me to think about someone like you who's an actor who relies on either being in front of an audience or on a set surrounded by people. When this project comes to you, where were you in your pandemic life? What were you kind of looking for either as a way to get out of this or maybe uh, kind of deal with it through through the work on this yeah i mean i I suppose i had i had a very uh actively start to my pandemic i was all set to open a play on broadway um when broadway was shut down i mean i was literally in a in a rehearsal in a broadway theater um when the producers came in and said you know this is gonna go dark for a bit and it turned out to be forever um but uh you know so that was a you know certainly as an actor it was a it was a distressing start um and you know obviously a lot of questions over what was going to be possible um, going forward, whether in, in theatre or in film. And uh, so, yeah, you know, there was there was a lot of anxiety flying around. Um, and I've been lucky enough to do, you know, a, a couple of projects during this time. But yeah, it was really, it, it gave me a lot of hope to, to see this one come along because it was, as you say, so clearly born out of the limitations of, of you know, what, what we could do. You know, the idea of, I don't know, shooting a movie about, 
two football teams or something is yeah. you know not very practical right now um but uh, you know a, a, an episode that just really champions one or two performances and also i felt thematically you know in the writing there was so clearly some really deep dive thinking going on in terms of the, the the questions that have been facing everybody during this time so you know i think everybody at some point in this past year has had you know a pretty introspective moment um you know looking at their at their past at memories and also a great deal of anxiety about the the future whether it's the near future or, or long term and you know where we're going both both personally and as a as a human race um you know and i think sort of taking stock of all that and it really felt like a right you know, taken some of those things, some of the questions, and turned it into something um, as beautiful as this, and and that felt very special to be a part of. I've talked to a couple people who, you know, actors especially who had those moments in the early days, being like, "Am I ever going to work again? Like, is this going to just like completely change all the work we do?" Did you like in those early weeks, especially being on Broadway, like really watching so much shutdown? Did you have those moments of being like, "What even is this job going to be in the future?" Yeah, I mean it's it's a fairly ridiculous job at the best of times, and uh, uh, but definitely when a pandemic comes along, you just think, oh, I might have chosen the wrong profession here. Um, and uh, too late to be an epidemiologist, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, it's like I could have done something practical, um, but uh, yeah. So there was there was a bit of that, you know, flying around. Um, but as it turns out, you know, with people being stuck in their homes, there's been a great deal of demand for things to watch and and enjoy and and take our minds off some of the bigger problems. And so, you know, perhaps there is still a place for us. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's been an interesting time just sort of coming, coming to terms with lots of things really. Um, but uh, yeah, that definitely had a part to play. Yeah. Um, I was interested, I don't know where these projects lined up, but you had this film at Berlin, I'm Your Man, that's in German, and you're playing a robot, um, which is not really what Solos is about, but there's just, you know, this overlap in thinking about the future and thinking about tech and how these plays roles in that. Is that something that you have thought about, or is this a coincidence that these two things are happening around the same time? No, definitely. I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely themes and questions that I've, I've always uh, been interested in. Um, but I felt particularly this year, you know, if I was going to do something and step outside of this bubble and, and go out there and, and engage with, uh, you know, with something at, at work that it, I, I would ideally like, like it to have, you know, these, these themes underlying and some of these questions. Um, and yeah, weirdly, you know, I'm your man is, uh, yeah, there is a little bit of, of solos sort of, uh, you know, thematically in there, it's sort of near future. Um, you know, it's by and large the world that we live in, except that there are these, uh, sort of bespoke Android boyfriends that you can uh, that you can order. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I was playing one of those, speaking German, which was, um, you know, equally surreal to setting for <laughs> on on set with Morgan Freeman. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that? I mean, you say especially now you want to do work that's kind of on those topics. Like, is that something you think this past year has changed in you in terms of what you look for and like in in making something that either speaks to you or or speaks to something broader? Like, would you have thought about? Would you have thought about it that way a year ago? I mean, I think there's always a hope that that some of the work, at least some of the work we do, has some sort of uh, deeper meaning. And that's not to say I I don't still enjoy reading and and you know don't still have an ambition to do deeply silly things as well that have <laughs> you know very little uh, profundity to them. But um, but I did feel this year, you know, like if I was going to travel across the world, um, that you know it should be something as 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 thoughtful and beautiful as as I'm your man uh, in Germany and also you know here even just to sort of drive. 20 minutes down the street. Um, it was one of the few times I've, I've been that far out of my house this mm. year, you know, was to go and do this show. Yeah. And, um, 
and it felt um it, you know it really did feel worthwhile i think this whole this whole series seems to engage with some some big questions and and i found you know i found reading them and also playing them very very moving yeah, so you know, stepping on the set with Morgan Freeman, you've got you know, going filming something in the COVID age. You know, when I've talked to actors, like some people find it very like intense, where you're all kind of in there together. And I think some people have found it kind of isolating, where after you wrap, you can't have a conversation because you have to go off into your own bubble. So, how did that change, especially when you're on a set with just one other actor? Like, how does that change the entire dynamic you have there? Yeah, there was definitely a, you know a different atmosphere. Um, I mean, I would say there was a real there was a, a kind of triumphant spirit underlying everything as well. The fact that, you know, because of these strict protocols, because of the way it was put together, we were able to make something. And I think everybody, cast and crew, were very grateful back in, I think it was November we shot this. You know, yeah, I was gonna, what, I was um, ask. You know we were right in, the, right in the thick of things. And, um, you know, everybody was so grateful to have something to, to just go to work for. Yeah. Um, but the usual atmosphere the usual part of of your day where you're just sort of you know in between takes you i don't know you go to craft services and you just mm-hmm. stand around and talk nonsense with people all of that was gone you know yeah. even the craft services is gone you have to you know <laughs> you, you can't just go and sort of, you know, yeah there's no finger buffet uh, <laughs> in these times but um yeah so you know a little a little bit of the this sort of uh, you know the fun element of the day-to-day you know working experience was was absent but I would say that, you know, it, it was almost replaced by this this sense of, you know, that we were really pulling together and, and making something happen uh, despite all of the limitations. And that was that was cool to feel. Yeah. And, you know, that that feeling, I think, can exist on like a really big project where you've got like hundreds and hundreds of crew people around you and, you know, you're in front of the camera, you got to get it right. Or, you know, I think about something like Her Smell, where it's a tiny film, but you have like all of that spirit of bringing something together. So it's nice to think that there, you know, something as big as a pandemic has the power to unite people, and um, you know, hopefully, not put too much pressure on you as a person has to get the take right and get everybody. Yeah, out I there. mean, there, there is that feeling to to a lot of filmmaking. I find, you know, when you it's just a big team pulling together to do something crazy, yeah. and 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 that that spirit is often there. But I felt it was a sort of an added layer of of something where, even though we're all behind masks and visors and stuff, that you know that that we were able to make this happen. Yeah. So, you know, you'd been in Broadway rehearsals, so that idea of like having emotional intensity within a really confined story is obviously very present for you. But what's so remarkable about this, you know, episode of Solos is you've got this character who's going to be fully built. You've got to reach a lot of emotional highs in a pretty short period of time. And it's not like there's you haven't been in the previous six episodes to to build up to that. So what's the you know, do you sit down with the script and kind of map it out for yourself? What do you do to kind of get to those places that you need to go in a pretty short period of time? It's a good question, um, and I, I wish I knew the answer because then it would be so much easier. Um, but <laughs> I think a lot of it was just giving yourself over to the writing, really, and and it was something that that Morgan was very clearly doing himself was just sort of allowing the rhythms of the scene, you know. And the scene was thirty six pages, you know, so that it, it really went places, and um, you know, the writing was was so strong and so structured that yeah, you you just sort of gave yourself over to it, and and there's a huge amount of conflicting things going on in in our particular episode where you have this character Otto who's been searching his whole life for this for this thing that Stuart Morgan Freeman's character is in possession of and mm-hmm. and so there's the the culmination of a of an exhausting and emotional journey but also a great sense of of relief and and triumph but also this sort of resentment of this man who has this thing and then 
you know, a very, very emotional, uh, you know, um, revisiting of, of, of certain things. I don't want to give too you're getting, much You're getting away. really I'm, good at this, I'm, by the way. I'm trying to speak in sort of abstracted <laughs> the, off the, terms that I'm the not. The spoiler <laughs> rules are very intense and you're doing a really good they job. They really are. <laughs> and um, I'm still getting my head around it myself. But, um, but you know, there, there was a lot, there was a lot to play with there. You know, yeah. it, it wasn't just sort of two people at a bus stop talking, you know, it was, it was yeah. so much more than that. And, and, um, so yeah, I, I sort of followed, followed Morgan's lead, uh, you know, and, and just sort of gave myself over to the, to the rhythm of the writing really, I think. Now, I don't know if this is a spoiler too, and I think I have this right, that you are a voice in the other episode with Helen Mirren. Did I read the credits correctly? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So how does that, I mean, again, not to spoil anything, but like, how does that work with the story that you're playing in this episode or, you know, just how did that work in terms of uh, having a separate performance really? Yeah, I sort of I need to watch every episode uh, quite closely <laughs> to to figure out if there is any any real link between <laughs> between yeah, Otto I and, and I didn't see one, but I was wondering. I if didn't you knew either, okay, um, okay. and I think it was sort of coincidence, really. Um, okay. And I I just you know I happened to uh, you know have done this the voice of the computer for for Helen's episode, and and that in a way was a good primer, just just in terms of familiarizing myself with David's writing, really, and mm-hmm. watching Helen play again with the with the the nuances and and rhythms of her particular monologue and um you know getting to watch her up close um you know was was special anyway and then to get to go and actually sort of uh be in person with with morgan was you know just an incredible bonus i suppose yeah so how did that work with you so were you watching her performance on video link well how did that work together yeah i was i was actually live in the studio um okay. in a in a, a heavily protected sort of like little, a little box booth. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah and uh so i was i was able to sort of interact with her you know as as this computer might um but we we i think we may be saw each other in person once or twice uh you know the whole time we were we were filming again because of the protocols and whatever um but we sort of you know we sort of waved high from a distance and that kind yeah. of thing but um yeah it was a very it was a very different working experience to doing the episode with morgan yeah no i know movies can be weird like that sometimes too where like you have one scene you know like presumably there's people on eurovision you never cross paths with but like this is such an intense version of that where you're like being deliberately kept apart from each other you have to like yeah stage yeah. a premiere at some point or something like that um, you were talking earlier about wanting to get back to doing something silly and it made me think of Eurovision because, you know, thinking of like ways that people have escaped in the pandemic, like there is really no better example of it than Eurovision to me, I think. Like it was such a huge phenomenon over the summer. Like how much of that did you witness or or become aware of as it became like the the pandemic escape of choice? Yeah, it was it was bittersweet in a way because, you know, it was, yeah, I, I suppose when all said and done, it was it was a really lovely thing to have come out when it did I think in in sort of June um you know people were pretty ground down and there wasn't the usual sort of full of the joys of summer kind of yeah, feeling that you yeah. know it was it was it was bleak for a lot of people and so yeah to have something that was so sort of um unbridled and, and sort of joyous and silly and and uh just fun um you know we could never have predicted that you know that the, the thirst that people would have for something like that at the time yeah. it did. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been lovely. The feedback has been amazing. And uh, yeah, obviously, you know, the, the ego wishes that you could get your, your red carpet moment or whatever and go and meet the fans or, or whatever it is. And I think there was a plan to have some kind of presence at the Eurovision Song Contest itself, mm-hmm. um, which would have obviously been incredible. Um, but, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it's, you know, we're, we're making 
entertainment for people to enjoy in, in, in whatever way they can. And especially at the moment. And, um, so it was, yeah, it was really, it's, it's a lovely thing to have out there. And I know people are still enjoying it and the music is incredible. Yeah. Did you see uh, Husevic performed at the Oscars? Oh, amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> and it's something they couldn't have done at the regular Oscars. So it's like they took advantage of the format and like did something different. I was, I was. Icelandic like, children in fishing jumpers. I you know, know. It gets me every time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Honestly, I've listened to that song on Spotify and been like, why am I emotionally affected by this? It's a beautiful, beautiful song. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's been interesting watching, you know, it's been like about kind of 10 years since you have this like big breakout moment and you have really hopped genres and done things. And, you know, to me, it seems like a deliberate way. I think a lot of times actors say it's not deliberate. It's what the work that comes to you. But it makes me wonder if after Eurovision, people are like, oh, well, let me offer you some silly comedies or after solos that people want to put you into sci-fi. Like, are you watching the options kind of change of what's presented to you as you as you do all of these different things to kind of, I mean, in some ways show your range? Like, I don't know if that's the goal, but it's that's the effect it has. Yeah, part of it's sort of showing range. Part of it's feeling it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a sort of conventional training, so a lot of my, a lot of my education has been on the job. And it's like, well, I, I you know, I want to try doing this. I want to see if I can do this. And I, you know, I knew that I, I love comedy, and I, I used to do uh, more of it. And it was, it was great to sort of uh, feel like I was getting back into that. And there's definitely more comedy down the line for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, it's lovely. You know, some of these things. Some of them hit, some of them don't. But you know, for me, yeah. it's all it's all an experience. I learn something on on everything I do, um, and uh, yeah, I love just the you know the the shape that things are becoming. How long did it take to get to that position? Being like, well, some of it hits and some of it doesn't, but I've learned it. Like, does it take a while to get used to that? When you know, when you've invested so much into something and it may or may not be received the way you want it to be. Yeah, it's just you know, I've I've tried to sort of feel that there's a reason for everything I do, and and uh, you know, and try and try and find the lesson in everything is, you know, and yeah, if something doesn't work for whatever reason, you know, I, I know in my heart of hearts why I wanted to do it. And, uh, and very often there's something I can take away from it, you know, even if it's not some giant box office success, you know, there's, you know, I, I might've, it might just friendship or a, or a working relationship or, or just knowledge that I can try something different is, is yeah. very valuable to me. Yeah, I mean, what have we all taken from the last year if not to, like, take what you can from an experience and, and not want things to go as planned because they may nev- never go as planned. The, yeah, it's often different to to what you think it will be. <laughs> <laughs> so for solos for you, I mean, obviously with the the spoilers trickery, especially around your role in it, like when you're telling people you know about it or telling people to watch it, like what's what's your pitch for it? Like what are you what do you think that either people, you know, or people who want to watch it, like might find in it, even if you can't really describe what it's about? I think, you know, it's. For me, it's about seeing, you know, a great writer like David take some of these, some of these big questions, some of these big themes and, and finding a character to fit maybe one of those questions and just running down the field and giving a, a great actor an opportunity to really go to town and have a lot of fun. And I found, you know, every episode that I've seen incredibly moving, you know, and, and I think that's very rare that you get a sort of an anthology show where each episode is quite is quite so moving on its own merit really yeah um and so yeah there's some fantastic performances and and just uh you know in in half an hour some really sort of deep dive emotional journeys that you can go on with this show there's something about just going to see all those faces in close up for so long and in every episode you just get all this time to linger on what they can do and i imagine if you're an actor or aspiring actor you can just learn so much from spending that time with the face and what they can do with it in those spaces yeah, very much. Yeah, and it's a you know it's a really it's a really interesting group of actors, and they're all fantastic. And and uh, 
yeah, it's, 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 you know, a real treat to watch. We'll get you guys back together for like an ensemble, like Glengarry Glen Ross or some, somebody <laughs> where you're all in a room shouting at each other. Um, I have a last question before I run out of time. And we've been doing this rolling series of book recommendations on VF.com. So if if you have read anything recently that you would like to recommend, I would love to hear it and share it with people. Have you read anything good lately? That is a great question. One of the books that I enjoyed most uh, this, this past year is a novel called Threshold by an Irish writer called Rob Doyle. Okay. Um, that is a sort of a, a wandering uh, novel around around Europe, a sort of a young man uh, coming to terms with a lot of things. And uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed that. That sounds great. Yeah, it's been really fun asking these questions because everyone has something to recommend and like wants to not talk about themselves for a second and recommend a book. So yeah, it's really yeah. nice. And it's been a great year for reading. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Yeah, I have really gotten it back together after a long time of watching TV instead. Um, well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk to me for the book recommendation. And um, yeah, congratulations on the show. Thank you very much. That does it for this week's show. Um, you can find us at VanityFair.com, including coverage of the ongoing Golden Globes fallout. And uh, Richard, are you reviewing Woman in the Window? Sure am. Yeah, I should be writing right. it right now, but I'm not. <laughs> Read Richard's review of Woman in the Window as well. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. Uh, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. And Richard. Rylos. And Joanna. Jarothis. And Bobby, where can people find you on Twitter or elsewhere? At Bobby Finger and also at Who Weekly, the podcast I co-host. Excellent. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of reading any magazine that is not Vanity Fair goes to Bobby Finger. I couldn't put it down, but I hated every page of it. 